Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Air Force JAG School podcast. Today we are sitting down again with Major Marissa Kester to finish up part two of Air Force Women's History. Switching gears a little bit, uh, you know, in, into the, the 60s, obviously, we know culturally there's a big shift. Uh, feminism is kind of becoming a buzzword. And you have um, the Feminine Mystique is published. And you have uh, all these women coming forward to talk about equality, to, you know, get women more integrated into society, leaving the house. Uh, and Around that same time, uh, the Dakowitz were started. So could you talk a little bit about who they were and what their goals were? Yeah, so Dakowitz was formed um, in 1951 was the year. Um, and I'm going to haven't looked at my notes in forever. I'm pretty sure it was 51. Um, and it was formed right when the Korean War was kind of starting up, and they were trying to kick off that recruiting campaign and just had no idea. There, there was this assumption going into the Korean War that women would be ready and able and it would just be so simple to recruit them and people would want to join just like they did in World War II. But obviously that was not what happened. And so they created Dakowitz to kind of get a better feel for what women need or want or just how to better recruit and retain them. Um, And it has been a really kind of backbone institution since then. Um, and they provide recommendations every year and are often decades ahead of their time in their recommendations <laughs> that eventually they get approved, but it might take a while. Um, but yeah, and then the, the 60s is kind of second wave of feminism, which was a logical next step from the, you know, quote unquote, first phase, which was earlier in the century when women earned the right to vote, um, and just basically be viewed as like an equal citizen in the United States. Uh but they still weren't in many, many, many ways, um, but they were able to vote. And so the second wave was almost to a, a cultural reaction to that 1950s bubble in which women had these very strict roles and responsibilities placed upon them. And of course, women are humans and no one likes to be put in any type of role or responsibility that's incredibly strict and limiting. Um, and so it multi multi-factored why that kind of really started to kick off in the 60s. Um, and so that, of course, led right into the military as it does um and so you start to see the the bigger institutions like the national organization for women and the um, president kennedy establishing a commission on women um where these outside forces start actually looking at women and their employment and the discrepancies essentially between how women and men are employed and treated and like the pay gap and pregnancy and all those sorts of factors Um, and then women in the military slowly started to kind of get on board with that as well. Um, Vietnam, the Vietnam conflict, um, that spanned, you know, number of years kind of probably slowed it down, but also encouraged it in a way. Um, because beginning the early, you know, mid 1960s when Southeast Asia conflict kind of started to kick off and we started to get involved towards, you know, 
the early 1970s when it ended, women were in kind of a very different position by the end than they were at the beginning. And so it was this larger cultural tidal wave going on, but women within the military and the Air Force definitely kind of like jumped on board and like, you know, pushed as well to, to get a few basic things changed because at that point, nothing had been changed since the Integration Act until public law uh, 9130. So it was a solid, you know, 20 years of, of living as if it was the post-World War uh, II world when it, when it wasn't anymore. So let's talk a little bit. I, you know, I'm, I'm a JAG. I love the laws. So let's talk a little <laughs> bit about uh, public law 9130, because um, that, that's sort of the Gene the Holm era, right? Yeah. When things really start to, to start to move and change. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the public law. What did it, what did it end up changing? This was definitely the, the Gene Holm era. And, and most women's directors of the Air Force previously had kind of been on board with the whole just like, lay low, let's just do our jobs, like, don't draw attention to ourselves. And there was certain certainly validity in that approach. And obviously, it worked, it worked out just fine. Um, but Gene Holm was kind of the one that came around and started shaking the cages a little bit. Um, and so yeah, public law, public law 9130 was the, the biggest thing remembered from that is that it essentially removed the rank restrictions on women in the military. And up until this point, that really hadn't been an issue. There hadn't been enough women um, that they had ever come close to that 2% cap or um, really had any need to like uh, remove that restriction. But the problem was that at this point, you know, late 1960s, all those women who had served in World War II or who had joined the Air Force right away, or the you know the military right after World War II, they were all you know field grade officers, and so there were a bunch of relatively you know majors and lieutenant colonels that couldn't do anything else, couldn't go anywhere else. They were kind of capped pretty early in their career um, because there could only be, according to the Women's Integration Act, one colonel, female colonel in in the service at any one time, and it was a temporary position, so it wasn't even a permanent <laughs> you know. Uh, field. It was the women's director position. So this law went in and removed um, a bunch of those restrictions. And um, yeah, most people remember it as like the women's promotion law is what they called it because it allowed women to become general. Um, and so everyone, of course, not everyone, but a lot of people, of course, were fearful that, oh, we just opened the floodgates. You know, there's going to be all these women generals walking around now. Of course, that's not really what happened, but um, that is how Jean Holm was able to get her her stars, her first star. She was the first one on the Air Force to promote general. Um, and so that was a big turning point because, again, it was the first major piece of legislation that affected women in the military since the Integration Act. So switching up the way that the women were structured within the force inevitably led to other shifts. You can't just change one thing and nothing else changes. A bunch of stuff is going to change after that, kind of the aftershocks. So that was um, a big, big turning point, I would say. So a little bit right in the same window of time, there's a lot happened, it feels like, in the 60s. Like you mentioned before, also now we have Vietnam. So there was, I think, a lot of resistance to having women actually serving in Southeast Asia outside of maybe some, like, nurse nursing corps women who there never seemed to be much um, debate about the importance of nurses overall. But I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's even some resistance to sending women into those sort of combat 
areas to have them, you know, do their jobs. What was the turning point there? Um, it looks like a, you know, a couple of people, the, the battle was sort of one that they were allowed to go over and actually serve overseas. Um, but what were some of the struggles there? Yes, definitely a lot of resistance, but it, it was almost like that, that again, that bureaucratic resistance because commanders in the field were actually requesting certain women or um, units of women to come over and help because they felt like they could do a great job and they needed their help. And so it was actually the, the big Air Force that was saying, no, you know, the whole combat law thing, you know, that was very um, over-interpreted from the Integration Act. But then a lot of the kind of reasoning they used was, well, women need separate housing, separate uniforms, separate everything at this point, because it was still so kind of like, you know, gender segregated, that we don't want to have to build or maintain housing or any of these things for such a few number of women who are going to serve. Um, and so a lot of that's the reason not very many enlisted women were actually able to um, deploy or serve overseas. Officers were more likely to be allowed to deploy, but they really had to push for that. Um, and there was it was kind of this just like handshake agreement that between the, the male leadership at the time that like we're just not going to have women deploy. Um, and so, yeah, the, the women that were end up able to deploy the first few especially had to kind of push back and say, no, there's there's no reason why, why I can't, why I shouldn't. I want to. I'm volunteering. <laughs> you know, you probably need some volunteers. Um, a lot of it was, I think, the first test of, like, women volunteering to deploy, which probably didn't happen, you know, very much in Korea. And, again, most most of the women that served in the Korean conflict were served stateside. So they didn't deploy to the theater. And, the, of course, the ones who did were nurses. And I really – I'm sure it exists somewhere, but if it doesn't, I would love for someone to write a tome on <laughs> military nursing because it's just a whole other animal. It's a whole other thing. And I feel like they're always there. Right. And no one ever really acknowledges that you just like assume they're going to be there and they are. Um, and kind of the same thing happened in Vietnam, but nursing aside, um, there were a few officers and I think around six to 800, there actually are no, um, there's no official number because there was no official record of all the women that deployed. So there's no way to say, how many actually deployed or what they did or awards uh, or medals they earned from their service because no one kept track of that. So, yeah, it, it was just this shift in the way that, like, women were volunteering and pushing to deploy. And then eventually the Air Force kind of had to acquiesce and let them, especially because the conflict dragged out for so long, um, that when we emerged from Vietnam, there was this precedent that was set that, like, you know, women can deploy, they want to deploy. Um, during the Tet Offensive, there was um, one of, I think the Chief Master Sergeant wrote a letter um, that basically said the women were, you know, amazing. They're amazingly helpful. They handle all the stresses of, of deployment and all, you know, all those fears that women can't handle the stress and of combat and all these things. Um, that emotional argument that, nope, they did just fine. They're, they're here helping out. They're doing the mission. They're as good as or better than all their male counterparts. Um, so that was kind of interesting to run across that letter. But, yeah, I would say it was more the Vietnam uh, conflict. It wasn't a high volume of participation with women necessarily, but it was a huge shift in the in the internal perspective of, like, okay, now, like, we have used women. We can use them. It's been done before. So next time around, like, the, the tracks are already laid a little bit um, to, to use women more, you know. Yeah, and that's so interesting because there's sort of that chicken or the egg question of does change really start at the top or at the bottom because you know it's so interesting that like big air force big bureaucracy congress 
was like, no, women are too fragile for this. Women can't handle this. They're hysterical. And then, but the actual commanders and people who are overseas in these situations are like, no, they're doing just fine. We would actually, can we have more? Like, will more people come over? We need all these right. women. We need help. Um, and they're good workers. Like, can we have more of them? There's always, I think there's always a question in law, right? Which is, are we starting from, you know, does, do people at the top tell us what we're going to be doing? Or does that cultural revolution really start more with the general population and then it gains so much traction that it starts to become law? And I think that's the same kind of question you can have, you know, in this situation, because um, then now you're into the 70s and so much stuff happened in the 70s. I mean, even yeah. in the in, in law, in like um, legal precedent, the 50s and 60s and 70s were times of big changes to um rights and equality not just for for women but for um you know black people and other minorities there's a ton going on in these decades and um you know this the women in the military it, you know it's not really different because you know you have in the 70s when they really changed the way that they start applying equal protection um like before the 70s if there was a rational reason for treating men and women differently, it was allowed. It was never found to be a violation of equal protection as long as it was, quote unquote, justifiable, that there was like a, a rational reason that women and men are different. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, when they start making this shift, it's really the I think if we didn't have some people at the top, though, who were helping in the military to enforce this stuff. So General Holm talks a lot uh, in her book and also in her interview with Library of Congress about her relationship with uh, General Robert Dixon and the personal interest he took in changing a lot of these internal policies that were holding women back. And I do think, you know, there's that combination of you have to not only do you, does it have to kind of come from the top where you have to have, you know, the Supreme Court, you have to have Congress actually making big policy and law changes, but you also need to have people who are actually implementing them at lower levels because we know, you know, especially the military bureaucracy can be a nightmare and you can get away with probably ignoring something for years before you actually put it into practice. I mean, we've seen that um, even just in this past decade um, when President Trump signed the executive order that uh, transgender members were no longer able to serve, the military kind of dragged their feet on actually implementing that to kind of see how much traction it would get and how, you know, to see if it would last. So we're pretty good at <laughs> at delaying things. So I think it really did take people on both ends to to speak up and get some of this stuff to change. I do think it's interesting that one of the first pieces of discrimination that changed was actually in favor of men which was that um, women used to be able to separate voluntarily if they were going to get married. And then they changed that and they said, well, that, that's not fair to the men because they don't have an out, right? Like this is right. an all-volunteer force now, but once you're in, you're in. So I, I thought that was funny. That was sort of the first thing was how are we discriminating against men? So now women right. can't just separate <laughs> voluntarily. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I know. Yep. And um, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. And it's, it is interesting, you know, I, through the process of writing, I kept trying to like nail down this like pattern or, you know, this list of players or characters that were necessary for change. And of course, if there was a, a formula, someone much smarter than me would have figured it out by now. But um, yeah, it really is kind of like um, a dance or a flow. It's like a, 
it's not a linear thing, um, social change and cultural change. And it, and it often takes more time than we think it should because just those certain um, beliefs or, or cultural programs you have running in, in the background of your mind that you're probably not even conscious of, they just determine so much of how you see the world and what you think is right and what other people think is right. And just, you know, they just determine everything. And so um, those type of things take just generations to change really and so yeah the the women that really and the men too I mean there were absolutely men who were incredibly supportive were incredibly like relevant and, and game changers honestly um, for certain policies to get changed um, it just takes a few people to, to really stand there and say no this is silly or this this is outdated or this is not relevant anymore this really needs to be changed um, and and yeah because the military is uh, when it wants to be, it can be incredibly stubborn <laughs> because it kind of is in its own bubble. And so, right, no one's checking up necessarily on the day-to-day -day implementation of policies or um, attempts to shift the culture in one direction. Uh, no one's doing that necessarily, you know. So um, if it's not being done, someone has to kind of stand up and, and make a scene. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to do that, but the people that do are generally the ones that we kind of, I know. And you really have to give people credit. Um, again, like General Holm, a lot of this stuff, you know, it's you never know what you would do personally. But I feel like if I was here and I was meeting that kind of resistance, I don't know that I would keep putting up with it. And I know she talks a lot about that. She just got lucky. She had great bosses. She had cool assignments. And she was obviously somebody that people liked working with. And she was she became the first female general in the Air Force. So, you know, someone liked her somewhere. Right. And, you know, you just have to give her so much credit because she really stuck to her guns. And, you know, she was really a big part of all of this change happening, even though she doesn't really take a lot of credit for it. When she talks about it, she was I was in the right place at the right time. I was at the right meetings. And it's like, oh, man, I don't know that I would have put up with a lot of this stuff. You know, I think I would have wanted to be somewhere where I felt included and accepted. So you have to give people a lot of credit for being around long enough to help make these changes happen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just having the, the persistence, honestly, I mean, for year after year. And obviously she was good at uh, playing that game where she was able to rise up within the ranks and she was able to be at those meetings. You know, what's that phrase? Like luck requires opportunity, essentially. Like she put herself in the positions, whether she believed it was luck or not, or, you know, somewhat irrelevant, but she was the one that still was able to like stick with it and persist. And yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that would be exhausting, quite honestly. So, um, you know, for the people that really, that really stick with it. Yeah. It's uh, that fortitude is, is, it can really obviously change everything. Yeah, it really can. Um, and then just a couple other little things that happened in the 70s that I wanted to point out, mostly because they're law related. So, you know how we feel about that around here. Um, also, because yeah. I think they are culturally and historically important. Um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, very famously uh, argued in front of the Supreme Court before she was a justice herself uh, in 1973 about female service member dependent benefits. So prior to this, if you were a female service member and you had dependents, uh, you know, husband and children in, in this time, unless your husband relied on you for more than 50% of his support, you did not get any dependent benefits whatsoever. It didn't matter what your rank was. It didn't matter what your job was. You know, you could be a lieutenant colonel. And if you have a husband, if he has a job, you're not getting any dependent benefits. Uh, so she very famously 
argue that that was unconstitutional under equal protection. And she did win. And that was a pretty big case. I think it was uh, Lieutenant Frontiero. She was actually here at Maxwell. And she was the one who she was the petitioner in that case. And that was a really, a really big shift, I think, in the way that people thought about female service members. Because to me, it implies the idea that women don't have dependents is just culturally, you know, that women's jobs aren't important, that women are not bringing home the bacon, that women are not the family member who does all the supporting. And I mean, I think in the 70s, I think the concept of like a stay-at-home husband was almost unfathomable. Like to me, I think the uh, 50% of household support probably was for people who had husbands who maybe were disabled and couldn't work because I don't think right. culturally yeah, I don't think oh, that absolutely. was even a thing. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, oh, no, I was just going to say there, there was definitely, I felt like almost an element of shame to that rule. Like, you know, if your spouse can't support you, then you need to prove it, number one, and then, like, and then we'll give you some benefit. <laughs> you know, like, this kind of ridiculous thing versus um, a man, if, if they were married, they were just assumed to, you know, need that spousal or dependent support. So, yeah. Yeah, there was definitely you know, kind of pressure, I think in some cases still exists today, that women having jobs, like now we're kind of, you know, the, the, the 80s and 90s kind of created the two-income household idea. But definitely at the time, I think even today, the the thought that a, the, the female spouse having a job, like that wasn't as important, but that might be more for her own like interest and benefit than it was anything beneficial to the household. And a lot of, th- I think a lot of times too, it was still thought as being detrimental you know, like maybe you should be at home taking care of the family. Like if you're the one at work, fine, I guess, you know, we'll give you the benefits, but maybe you shouldn't be, you know, why would we incentivize you to get a job when you should be home taking care of those kids, lady? Totally, totally. And there was no, I mean, we think childcare is hard to get today. Like in the seventies or eighties, it was fairly non-existent. People had to ask, um, you know, their neighbors and family and there was no such thing as like enforced childcare or any and any like encouragement of you know yeah having having kids because yeah you should probably be at home if you have those kids right what are you doing here and and your husband's not supporting you more than fifty percent like ooh, what's going on here you know um, right yeah it was it was definitely a big because it was kind of the it was the first and it, and it was a big case obviously um, that opened the door to the next few like okay well that's going to change then we got a list of other things that need to change too just logically like it wouldn't make any sense to not change these other things like pregnancy waivers and um everything else so uh yeah that that definitely was that was a big big deal yeah i also thought it was interesting too you told a little anecdote in your book about women attending air war college there wasn't the first female to actually attend air war college wasn't until certainly until after uh public law 90-130 because it was only open I think at the time, right, to colonels, full bird 06 colonels, and then they had to open it up to 05s just so women were able to attend. Um, and even then, you know, there were, there's such a cap on who could even have, you know, an 05 rank that it was almost impossible for women to get to go. And then also just being a cadet at USAFA, uh, and you talked about how um, members of Congress brought a lawsuit because they wanted to write letters of recommendation for women to attend USAFA and they were being forced to be discriminatory when they wrote those letters because they couldn't write them for women. 
and they would be in violation of like equal protection clause for not being able to write those letters. I thought that was like a fascinating legal read on that situation. Was it wasn't even you know, just to say, oh, women and men should be able to both attend, but the idea of members of Congress saying, no, you're forcing me to discriminate now because I can't recommend women for this, so now I'm violating equal protection. I thought that was such an interesting an interesting argument to make. And I think this is one of those occasions where um, you can start to use the law as a weapon sometimes to accomplish things. If you take the right perspective and if you use it the right way, you know, it can really be a tool for change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't, I can imagine being an Air Force um, JAG in the seventies was just like fascinating for lack of a better word. Um, Other probably, I mean, there's so many changes and, and yeah, different and interesting angles that certain policies were changed and and I, I feel like kind of ahead of the time too you know I, I feel like typically we think of like the law changing being one of the last things to change but 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 in some instances especially with women in the military it was kind of one of the first things to really change and then everyone had to get on board and, and like shift their mindset and adapt to it um which seems a little backwards almost so yeah there, that that uh, case with the academy but yeah just a lot of changes in the 70s for sure and then and then allowing women to be in pilot training and it just like kept going like once that train kind of left the station it just there was a lot of change in like a decade or two um that happened that you know it's cool and i can imagine at the time was kind of like head spinning (laughs) yeah it really must have been um even so you know talking about pilot training you know that's the heart of the air force that's our our claim to fame, and I think we even still see it now, right? Like to be a pilot is to be at the top of the pile. Yeah. Um, that they didn't really open up pilot training to women until the 1970s. Obviously, still were not in any way, shape, or form allowed to do any sort of combat flying. Uh, but it's crazy when you think back to World War II and the WACs and these women who were flying all of these. They weren't flying combat missions, but they were flying all of these um, like logistics and supply missions, and they were doing the bulk of the um the stateside flying to free up men to go to combat which the men did not appreciate uh so it's just it's just crazy to think that like there was this prevailing cultural ideal that women weren't capable of handling even being a pilot first off but also that this is this sacred sanctified thing and it will be tarnished if we allow women to play a role in this because it will diminish what it means for me to be a pilot if this woman can also do it. Yeah, absolutely. And that really was kind of the um, sacred cow because the Air Force, by and large, has been the first service to integrate women with most things and kind of the most open and the most kind of like forward-leaning with that kind of stuff, whether they decide because they think women should be involved or they see it coming, so they just lean into it and let it happen, you know, early on. Um, but yes, the pilot training was definitely kind of the one, like, exactly like you said, it, it was, and that kind of goes to the bigger definition or like when you think bigger, you bigger picture, you know, more philosophical or whatever about this whole topic of like everything a man is, is defined by what he's essentially not, you know, and what he's not is not a woman. And so that, that split between like being a pilot and being a combat pilot and being a pilot in this like elite, like air force, like this is what we do. This is, I'm the best of the best because I'm a pilot in this force. And therefore, if women are going to be allowed in, like that just dilutes all of my, you know, achievements or my kind of place in society or in the force. Um, 
And so I don't even know if it was necessarily, I'm sure in some cases it was very like opposed to women in general, just believing, you know, the, the argument we hear even, you know, today that women can't handle certain stressors or they're too emotional or all, all that thing. Um, but a lot of it was like, don't, don't come into my, you know, just leave my bubble, my world alone and go do whatever else you want to do. But like, don't touch my, you know, my thing. Um, but then they did. <laughs> so, Sorry. That only for so long. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the 1980s because you talked about how there was actually kind of a moment in time where maybe this all was going to go away. And it was actually sort of like bureaucratic inertia that kept the women in the Air Force. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was the kind of recruiting um, hold that took place. I think we were referencing uh, when Reagan was elected in 1980. Um, it was kind of this unofficial, uh, it was kind of the army that really jumped in and the Air Force rode on the coattails that were like, oh, whoa, 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 like we need a minute. Like a lot has happened, a lot has changed. We need a minute to reassess the situation and like, do we really need, you know, back to that question, women in the military to this extent because, you know, now it just, there was a lot of change. And so um, they took a year or two to uh, deal with that. And then basically um, the administration kind of came back. You know, they didn't really, I don't think, even knew it was happening necessarily. But um, like, okay, that that was good. Like, we're moving on now. It's, it's time to move on. Um, and the 80s, we saw a lot more focus or awareness of that um, combat restriction because how and every service did this in their own way but for the air force they took that um, combat rule from the integration act that was one of the few things still in place um, and they added a bunch to it and so um, they decided that any women were not allowed to participate in anything combat related at all or hypothetically or in the future like you know just a very uh, vague but like all-encompassing definition and so you know i the woman pause of what Jean Holm called it when she when she talked about it in her book um, with that two year kind of recruiting pause. Um, maybe they they felt like that was coming next and they they needed to reassess or whatever it was. But yeah, it's an interesting kind of again the, the military kind of doing their thing in a bubble, like pushing back a little bit, like oh we need to we need to think about this, we need to adjust. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, in your book, you said somebody said it was a uh, traumatic exercise for men while they were integrating women and making the military more co-ed. Traumatic exercise. Traumatic, yep. (laughs) Looking back, like that, that, when I walked away from like kind of being done with this project, it was like, while there's still so much, you can you can look at all day all the ways that there's so much how how much more we have to go and all the different ways and all the different things we can still change. But like, it really is kind of amazing how far we've come in a relatively short period of time. But you know, yeah, the whole like has been traumatic for us. I do think is is um funny because it's just a different a glimpse into a different perspective of the whole thing of like, oh my gosh, so much changed all at once. And then you know, when I joined, you know, the military was manly and full of men and this thing and that and then now it's not and I don't know I don't know what to think about it essentially the reaction at the time during that women pause that you were just talking about was like women like the the military is being feminized women are taking over the military and it's like the numbers had gone up but they were still so small compared to men that like that idea is purely a perception of like 
I wasn't even aware of all these issues five years ago. And now not only am I aware, but they've all changed and it just feels like it's all encompassing, but it really wasn't. It was kind of just some like natural logistical catch up to the fact that like, yikes, you need a woman's bathroom, you know? <laughs> right. Um, so changing gears a little bit, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was, and I think this is still culturally, this is fairly, I mean, recent memory. This has definitely happened during my lifetime, but the idea of the mommy war of the nineties and the perception that sending women into combat was a threat to the American family, right? So this whole time, everything we've talked about up until now the biggest caveat, the one leftover thing from the 48 Integration Act was that very vaguely women shouldn't be in combat. And the services definitely use the word combat anytime they decided that something was not for women, regardless of what the rationale behind it was. If you stuck combat somewhere in the job description now, women are excluded. Um, so looking at the 90s uh, Kennedy-Roth Amendment, so in the 90s, um, the House Armed Services Committee voted to allow women to fly in combat missions, um, but there was a ton of resistance to this from Congress, and a big part of the argument, it almost feels archaic because this is the 90s, and they were like, no, 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 like women have to be at home, women have to be with children, it would disrupt the whole household if women were allowed to go to combat, we're sending mothers to die. And it's, uh, Roth and Kennedy were the two congressmen who were really pushing this bill to allow uh, not only for women to serve in combat, but also to um, maybe start easing up on the gender-based assignment policies in general. And those are obviously now, I don't, I actually don't know if we have fully gotten away from now that women can be in uh, special operations, I don't know that we've actually eliminated gender-based assignments. I'm sure they, there might be some still lingering. Uh, but this was the first time people really started talking about that there are no neutral arguments to say that women are unable to do these kinds of combat jobs, specifically flying, um, and that we need to look at excellence and who's the best pilot, not what's their gender. And they were talking about how it's a restriction based in the law that's no longer relevant in the world of the 90s. And I thought that was really interesting because, again, this is something that feels like it would have come up in the 70s, you know, that this cultural shift would have changed. And it just goes to show that, you know, culturally there are a lot of thoughts and feelings and opinions about what a woman's role in society is. And those systemic cultural values still linger. You know, even into what, I mean, I guess being a child of the 80s and 90s, what I would consider modern time, <laughs> um, you right. know, that these things happen. I thought it was also really interesting that uh, John McCain testified and supported women in the military. And of course, you know, he has a very interesting and specific, you know, background uh, being in the army, having been a POW. So it's really, it's interesting not only that this was the time where someone stepped up and said, hey, actually, why are we still doing this? But that there was still so much resistance to it, you know, even in the 90s. Um, there was a lot in the, you know, we have um, Operation Urgent Fury, uh, El Dorado Canyon, uh, and just, you know, all of these instances where now suddenly we want to put women out there and they actually are starting to fly these combat missions and they're doing a good job. So, you know, it just 
it just goes to show that, like we were saying before, a lot of this stuff just takes time. Um, and there's also there's the idea too that women face very specifically terrible um, threats if you're taken as a POW, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Martha McSally was a mm-hmm. major whose plane went down, and I think she was like tortured and raped when she was taken as a POW. Oh, that was um, an army. Martha McSally was the Air Force. She was, I believe, a major when she um, she was the first woman to fly in combat. But there was an army major. Oh, I'm sorry. Mornum, I believe. But yeah, that same that story, that exact thing where she was basically like her plane went down and she was tortured and you know raped and all these horrible things, and that happened. Obviously, during the Gulf War, right when um, the Kennedy-Roth Amendment and, like, this topic was really kind of hot. Um, and so it was an argument as to why, see, you know, see, this is why women shouldn't be doing this, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, you have to respect, I know that she testified about it. You have to respect what she went through and that she doesn't want other people to go through that, you know. So it's just hard because right. it's, it's just hard because nobody, nobody deserves to go through something like that. Um, and we certainly don't want to put people at risk of something like that. But at the same time, um, you know, maybe women need at least the right to be allowed to assume that risk for themselves and to make that decision for themselves. Um, yeah, I think that was the biggest shift with the early 90s was just exactly what you just said was like kind of this um, coming like this point where we kind of like being in the military is inherently risky. And at this point, like we have been an all volunteer force for nearly two decades, like when the Gulf War kicks off. Um, so if a woman volunteers, at what point do you just let her, she, she chose to be a volunteer in the, in the military. No one's forcing her to do this. And so, you know, she kind of gets to choose what, what, you know, theoretically, right. You would think she would get to choose her level of risk um, with that risk acceptance or risk tolerance. Right. And I think a big part of that is just culturally, I think, and, Maybe, I mean, I think it's still around a little bit today in certain contexts, at least, that men know better what women need and that, you know, will help you make this decision because you're not really able to make that decision for yourself. Um, You know, just the idea that the whole patriarchy, right? The idea that, well, no, we need you at home. We'll tell you what's appropriate for you to be doing. Why don't you just have a seat and we'll let you know what your next job is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And because women had been allowed, you know, to a major extent in, in combat before, there was like, well, you haven't done this before. So how would you know? And it's like, well, you didn't let me do it. So how would I know? <laughs> you know? So it's kind of this, like, again, this self-feeding loop. And, and really, like, I forget what it was. Uh, I wish I could remember maybe a year or two ago, right when I was kind of finishing up this book and like on the news, I overheard, you know, someone come on and say, mothers are going to be sent and they're going to die and we're sending women and moms. And it was like the exact same thing. And I was just like, my poor husband, he's heard it a million times. I'm like, do you hear that right now? Like they're using the same argument over and over and over. And at some point, like, when are we going to let this one go? Like, let's pick a new argument, everyone, you know? (laughs) Right. Well, and also the idea too, um, you know, you and I are both, our spouses are also military and no one's pitching a fit that my husband is going overseas and you know my husband could die daddies die in war right and that's kind of i mean it's unfair to men to have that double standard the same way where why is my relationship with my children deemed more valuable obviously culturally because it's my job to take care of them in a way that i guess it's not my husband's job um but the idea that that relationship is less important is also sort of 
mystifying because to devalue your own relationship with like your family and your children is also really culturally interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that was um, that was kind of the pushback too with the the Gulf War, um, with the whole mommy war thing was like, you know, at this point, we had been an all volunteer force for nearly two decades. And so the demographics of the force had changed somewhat significantly. Um, people, um, officers were older, um, more likely to be married with kids. So versus, you know, in the 60s, maybe or the 50s, when it, there was still a draft, and it was still much more kind of a younger a younger force. Um, at this point, a lot of members did have kids. And yeah, exactly. I, why is it any worse for a dad to go die in combat than a mom? I mean, it's traumatic all around. No one wants that to happen. So to kind of say one life is more valuable than the other is not really making a, a solid argument, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. And I do think, though, that is definitely a prevailing sentiment. Um, even right now, um, for the record, this is being recorded in March of 2022. Uh, the Ukraine conflict is going on right now. And the news you know, talks about men between the ages of 18 and 60 required to stay behind and fight, women and children allowed to evacuate. And I was thinking there are female service members in uh, the Ukrainian army. So if you are the spouse, you're the active spouse and you're a female and you have two small children and your husband tries to evacuate with them, are they going to allow him to leave? Like, is it, is there not a trade-off to say, well, one of our family members has stayed behind to fight, so the other family member is going to take the, the rest of the family and go? Is that sufficient? Or are we going to have to make a decision? And I don't know that anybody's really asking that question, but it was something that occurred to me and I thought was interesting was the idea that, you know, it's still the women and children first mentality. And I think there's, I think a lot of people think there's probably something chivalrous about that, but, you know, this, maybe, yeah, thanks, but. Um, at the same time, it's definitely, it puts another cultural value on women as being child caretakers and, you know, not able to stay back and do the fighting. I don't, I certainly don't think they're turning down any women who want to stick around and help by any means, but it's still kind of an archaic idea. Instead of just saying one parent has to take kids and another parent has to stay behind, it was men who have to stay behind. Um, so it's definitely not something that culturally we've gotten past yet. But, you know, we've made so much change in just the past 50, 60, 70 years that, you know, over time, I'm sure that will change. And then so, yeah, finally, kind of getting into modern day a little bit. Obviously, in uh, 2011, uh, President Obama started passing a lot of diversity and inclusion uh, policies that we are still definitely talking about today. Uh, definitely something we're talking about in military justice. But I think this is really where we start to see a lot of the more modern day changes that now you and I are living it with, right? I uh, joined in 2015. So really only four years after that, uh, the creation, I don't know if a lot of people know this, like the creation of my vector, a big part of that was actually to encourage women to have other female mentors, which I didn't realize. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I I forget where I read that. (laughs) I can cite my sources, but yeah, part of it was that I know Jean Holm kind of talked about this and you mentioned in your book that for a long time to survive in the military for women, like to keep your job and kind of keep your, keep your, your spot, you had to keep your head down and you couldn't be, you couldn't stand out too much from the boys. You had to be one of the boys. You had to be, you couldn't rock the boat too much. You had to kind of go with the flow. And a big part of that was that women did not mentor each other. It was not seen as a good thing to have female mentors. It was a little bit every man for himself in a lot of those cases. Um, so yeah, the, my vector, 
was created, the idea was to put more people in touch with each other to encourage, especially women, to have more mentors. But I think also for the sake of diversity in general um, was, you know, if you're a minority or if you're someone who maybe your leadership has yet to be somebody that you felt like you could relate to, that there were, this was a way for you to get in touch with other people in the military who, you know, you might connect with on a different level. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about was the change, I think, in the 80s or 70s about OPRs and the things that you're allowed to write in OPRs. Um, a lot of the a lot of the things that people could write were things like, oh, you know, she's a the picture of femininity in our office. And, you know, <laughs> for a woman, she did a great job. Uh, you know. Yeah, those you know, are my favorite. <laughs> yeah, like, considering she's a woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so obviously they got rid of that. Um, but also now, uh, you know, so you can't have gendered language, uh, you know, for things that come up for um, promotions and stuff. So I know I, I was reading totally unrelated to this. I was reading a study and it was about um, AI at uh, places like Amazon where they're using AI to hire people and to kind of sort through applicants. And they found that the program had a bias where if a resume had something like a uh, president of like, women's officer forum or president of like women's chess club that if it had the word woman or women in it the ai marked it as like unwanted like this is not a good candidate i know that that's sort of part of the idea behind a lot of the way they're doing oprs and um and, and uh prfs and all that stuff is to try to avoid any sort of gender language whatsoever so that there's no indication on the face of the application, what the gender of the person is, um, which is super interesting. And also, I think, too, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think also now with a lot of the changes they're making to, like, maternity leave policy, that it's not supposed to be reflected on any of your paperwork that, like, you missed, you know, your 12 weeks to take care of your child, um, which is super important. That's obviously, too, we got a really nice, you know, maternity leave package, which is amazing. And now they're increasing uh, like parental leave in general, also for fathers, which is really nice. So they're making uh, making a lot of forward strides. Yeah, the maternity leave, I remember, changed right before I had my first son. So that was in 2016. And then when I was a reservist um, going to do my um, annual tour and my building didn't have a nursing room. So, yeah, I had to go pump in bathrooms and a ice chest closet. Um, and it was fine. I mean, but... Yeah, that was 2017, 2018. So an example of how the rule changes, but not necessarily things change right away. Like the rule has to change. And then people still have to go and like tell people the rule has changed and, and push the issue. And like almost every nursing room that I've heard ever seen has been an initiative of some woman, probably a mom or one who is nursing or is about to be nursing. <laughs> that is like, wait a minute, we don't have this. We're supposed to have this. So I'm going to take it upon myself to set this up. Like. A lot of stories I've seen are just women who view it themselves, essentially, even though it's a rule and it should be provided for. Um, it still takes like grassroots movement on the beginning half and then on to follow up with the law as well or the policy change as well. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I'm sure there are dozens of other tiny or not tiny things that are happening that you and I see or experience on a day to day that we don't even see for ourselves or realize or that we notice and it just hasn't been articulated in a way that will lead to change yet but um i have hope 
I think we're getting there. Yeah, I think the the secondary bias stuff is really fascinating just from a bigger picture and just like a bigger historical picture because like I've mentioned a few times, it's just the the stories that we that we like every generation essentially kind of buys into and grows up with and like what we watch our mothers do and what we we believe is appropriate, like that determines so much of what we even notice in the world as as fair or unfair or something that needs to be changed. Like if, if we believe a certain thing, like we're not even going to notice that it's, it's a problem because we don't think it's a problem, you know, and we're not even necessarily aware that we don't think it's a problem. So, um, and I'm not saying necessarily any type of like training is going to help with that. I think it's more just like the awareness that that's happening. And, and I think that's where the, the time comes in and like every generation changes how they operate and therefore how they raise their kids, you know, boys and girls. And, and so that change over time is I think somewhat inevitable because as long as people are reacting to the previous generation and the rules that they're living in now, which they almost always are, change is somewhat inevitable. It's just like the, the rate or the, the depth to which things change is, is interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. And I have to say too, um, you know, are things perfect? No, of course not. And there's always room for growth and change. But at the same time, you know, I think the Air Force and the DOD as a whole, I think, especially in the past couple of decades, we've become more progressive. We're the first a lot of times to make some of these changes, to ask these questions, to care about the answers and what we can do to fix things. And I think in a lot of ways, we are making better strides than a lot of the civilian sector, just, you know, knowing other you know, friends of mine who work out in the civilian world, even at other uh, government agencies, that things here are actually, you're sitting a little bit prettier, you know, being an Air Force member than maybe you would be if you were, you know, if I was a civilian attorney in a lot of, in a lot of ways. So, you know, it's... Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, we can be grateful that the people who've come before us, women and men, who've made the changes that they have did that for us and you know it's it's a pretty good place to be sitting these days and you know we I think we all just need to be mindful as we become people who are in leadership people who have more power people who have more ability to affect change that we listen when you know other people whether it's other women or you know people who are have are minorities or are some other um you know group of people who feel that something is being discriminatory or that there's a bias that we listen and we don't let our own view of the world influence how we make decisions about other people's experiences and the way that policies affect other people. Because I think that's a big part of this is that no one thought that this was a problem and no one wanted to listen to the fact that it was a problem for a really long time, you know, all these different things. And it took you know, lawsuits, it took intervention, um, you know, from higher level policy and law to really get a lot of this stuff changed. And, you know, maybe we can be better than that. Maybe we can listen, you know, at the ground level and we can start helping influence that change. And I think that's where we are really big picture. I think we're at this, we're living this really exciting time where, you know, the second wave of kind of pushing to prove that we are you know, the first wave was like, hey, we're citizens. The second wave of feminism was kind of more like, hey, we're equal to men. We could do everything just as well as them or better, you know, watch me. And now we're at this point where we can stand on all that work that has been done before us and, and 
like kind of the more subtle and softer like challenge the um through being curious and being open and through networking and sharing and and those grassroots efforts and like being persistent um the stories around like what it means to be like what is the military what's it for what is being a woman like a woman in the military like it's we there's so many definitions that we kind of take for granted or assume and they're so narrow and I think when we start challenging certain definitions and particularly as the nature of warfare is changing with technology and AI we're at that point anyway where it's going to happen so bringing along like how is the 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 mission changing and like the, our purpose as a military and the service changing and then what personnel shifts like mindset shifts do we need to make to to accommodate and to really like do well with that mission not you know leaving old ideas in the past of like this is the military and this is what we do and and, and you know and, and for better or worse and i understand people have a lot of resistance to that but at some point like it's going to shift whether or not we're paying attention and so kind of leaning into it and being curious and open of like what really is the best um way to accomplish this mission uh you know all other factors gender and the whole thing aside um what what do we need and 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 I think we're there. I mean, I really do. I, I have a lot of hope. I think a lot of people are open and curious and, and ready for change. And so I'm excited to see what happens next. Thank you again so much to Major Kester for sitting down and talking with us. You can find her book there from the beginning on the Air University website. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil podcast. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks. (laughs) ¶¶